Amen. Welcome to our service here today. Pray that your heart has been already conditioned, that the ground is fertile and ready to receive what God wants to share with us through His Word today. Today we're going to begin a series of sermons from the book of Romans. And what I want to do is a, a kind of brief fly, flyover. So we're going to have four sermons uh, covering the four main sections in the book of Romans. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 4, which is basically the introduction to the book and then the problem or the bad news. Next, we'll look at chapters 5 through 8, which contain the solution to the problem, or the good news. And then chapters 9 through 11, which deal with the theological implications of this good news. And then chapters 12 to 16, that deal with the practical implications of this good news. Now, why, why would we do Romans this way? Why would we, why would we kind of fly over and only hit the peaks when there's so much deep riches here. Well, it's been my experience, especially in the Anabaptist world, that we often misuse the book of Romans. There are certain sections and certain verses in Romans that we really like. And we spend a lot of time uh, preaching and teaching and referencing. And then there are other parts of the book of Romans that we ignore. We pretend like they don't exist. And the parts that we do use, we tend to, to usually either take them out of context or lift them from the context in isolation. I myself have preached from the book of Romans many times, many different passages. But it has been scattered and it hasn't been well connected. Many times attempts to preach through the book of Romans in a more detailed way often end up... Um, kind of getting bogged down in the details and losing focus on what the whole book is about. So my attempt here in this first series of sermons on the book of Romans is to help us keep the whole book connected and then to establish a foundation for further study of, the, of more of the details later so that we don't end up with just lots of little, little bits and pieces but that we end up with a picture of the glorious whole. Now this book of Romans, this letter of Paul to the Romans, is by many people considered to be the greatest letter ever written. And it is the greatest letter ever written for a couple of reasons, but the main reason is because it contains the greatest message ever spoken, ever written. We'll see that this letter is all about the good news of the gospel, from beginning to end. But that good news is built upon some terribly bad news. In fact, the bad news is worse than we think it is. But the good news is even more glorious, even more beautiful than we could ever have imagined. And so this is the greatest letter ever written. I, I tremble with both excitement and with fear at the thought of even attempting to preach through this great letter. Now before we get started in our study of Romans, I have a few kind of preliminary assumptions or considerations that I want us to keep in mind. First of all, we must assume, we must consider that this is the Word of God. And as such, we must take it seriously and we must take it as authoritative. It is given to us, has been given to us, as the inspired Word of God, breathed out by God. And as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all Scripture breathed out by God is useful and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that men and women of God may be competent, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So may God use our study of this book to make us into more competent Christians who are better equipped 
to serve God and others. Secondly, another assumption or consideration we must bring to this text. This letter to the Romans is, does not in any way contradict the rest of the Bible. God is one. When He reveals Himself, He reveals Himself as one, and therefore He cannot contradict Himself. Now, there are many charges against the book of Romans that it does indeed contradict other parts of the Bible. I say this cannot be. Because on the positive side, this book of Romans is full of references to the Old Testament, over 57 of them. The Apostle Paul appeals to the authority of Scripture, which was then the Old Testament. This book is consistent with the Old Testament, but also is consistent with the Gospels and with the rest of the epistles. The message of the book of Romans is a more thorough treatment of Christian doctrine or the gospel than any, one, any single book. It is, but it is the same gospel. It's not a different gospel. It's the same gospel that we find on every other page of Scripture, Old and New Testament. In fact, as many serious students of the Scripture have discovered, and as I have discovered personally in my own study, a good understanding of the book of Romans turns the lights on for understanding everything else in the Bible. So, don't be looking for or assuming contradictions. Be looking for congruence. Be expecting consistency, not inconsistency. Thirdly, this letter, this greatest letter ever written, is weighty. It is rich. It does have complexity to it. And some people accuse it of being hard to understand. Now, I would say to us that in reality, it isn't so hard to understand. As long as we are willing, at the outset, to let it say what it says. To just let it say what it says. You see, the problem with this book is not that it's hard to understand. The problem with this book is that it is offensive to natural man. It is offensive because the gospel is offensive. It is not so hard to understand, but hard to believe. And so it is our inclination to read it and to say, especially at certain places, surely it doesn't mean that. And so we figure out elaborate ways to make it say something else. And this is the source of most of the confusion surrounding this book. It's kind of like Mark Twain's uh, declaration that it isn't the stuff in the Bible that he doesn't understand that bothers him. It's the stuff in the Bible that he does understand that bothers him. If we approach this study, if we approach this book, and any of the rest of Scripture for that matter, if we approach it honestly and openly as it is written and as God intends it, then the result should be one of surrender. Surrender to it. Surrender to the authority of it. Whereby we say, yes, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. But if, if you are not willing to approach this text or any other text of Scripture in this way, then you will not understand. And it will not have the desired effect. Fourthly, this book is a well-reasoned argument. It is some of the best logic to be found on the pages of Scripture. This book is a well-reasoned argument, but it is not argumentative. And there's a big difference. You see, some people read this book like, like bitter medicine, when, when in reality it is the most beautiful, the, the most glorious explanation of the gospel that we can find in any one place, anywhere. Many people use the text of Romans, or pieces of it at least, as a sledgehammer to kind of win an argument or a debate. And I would say if we take it apart and use it in an argumentative way, then we do a disservice to the text and we do a disservice to ourselves. If the only tool you have to deal with the book of Romans is a sledgehammer, then every problem is going to look like a nail. 
just the way it's going to be. So, instead, be looking for the beauty and glory of God. Be looking for the love of God, along with the terrible wrath and judgment of God. It all comes together in this glorious letter. And if you do find a sledgehammer, please, please, use it on yourself first before you pick it up to use it on others. Fifthly, this letter is for us today. This isn't just some text written to some first century Christians that doesn't apply to us today. In the words of John MacArthur, in his introduction to his commentary on Romans, he says this, The epistle to the Romans speaks to us today just as powerfully as it spoke to men in the first century. It speaks morally about adultery, fornication, homosexuality, hating, murder, lying, and civil disobedience. It speaks intellectually, telling us that the natural man is confused because he has a reprobate mind. It speaks socially, telling us how we are to relate to one another. It speaks psychologically, telling us where true freedom comes to deliver men from the burden of guilt. It speaks nationally, telling us our responsibility to human government. It speaks internationally, telling us the ultimate destiny of the earth and especially the future of Israel. It speaks spiritually, answering man's despair by offering hope for the future. It speaks theologically, teaching us the relationship between the flesh and the spirit, between law and grace, between works and faith. But most of all, it profoundly brings God himself to us. This is for us today, here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we approach this study with fear and wonder. For you are a great God. And in the pages of this book, this letter to the Romans, we get a picture of ourselves and our sin. And we get a picture of you and your holiness. And this causes us to tremble. We also find that you are a gracious and merciful God. We ask that you would cause us to learn and grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are and what you have done on our behalf. And then we ask that you would instruct us as to how we should respond to you and how we should live in light of your glory and of your grace. Equip us and perfect us by your word and through your gospel. We ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit and then the gift of repentance and faith so that we can rightly respond to your revelation. May Christ be exalted and may your glory be revealed in all of our hearts. Amen. Now we didn't have a scripture reading this morning because I want to read for us the first four chapters of Romans. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us have sat down and read the whole book of Romans at one sitting. If you haven't done that, I would urge you to do so more than once. Perhaps I should just read the whole book of Romans this morning. But I f my fear was that I might lose some of you along the way. So in the reading of the first four chapters, I want you to pay attention. However that works for you. For some of you, that means following along in your copies of the Scripture. For others, that means just sitting there listening. Whatever it is that helps you not to be distracted, I want you to hear the first four chapters of this greatest letter ever written. I will read it. We'll stop a few places to call attention to particular aspects of it, but pretty much just read through the first four chapters. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice all of the conjunctions in this text. And all of the, the fors and the wherefores and therefores. and Keeps it all connected. Follow along. Notice those words. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Although they know that, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 
but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness... If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? <laughs> Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And now some of the most precious words in the book of Romans. But now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who are lawless, whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law... There is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. Now go back with me to Romans chapter 1. And as, as I said, we will hit a few of the high points here. First of all, the author, Paul, the slave of Christ. An apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, he calls himself many times. 
And that brings us to who he's writing to. The church in Rome. Those who are the saints. Those who are loved by God and called to be saints. He writes to them, grace to you, he says, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who were these saints in Rome? Well, evidently, no apostle had been there yet. Paul hadn't made any missionary journeys to Rome yet, although he indicates in this passage that he wants to come to them. seems the saints in Rome had become saints through the message of the gospel that was brought to them uh, from the disciples, from the, from the followers of Jesus who had, who had migrated to Rome over the years. But the church in Rome hadn't had the privilege or the advantage of apostolic teaching. The church in Rome was made up of some Jews and probably more Gentiles, as he references a couple of times here in the text. The main purpose of the Apostle Paul in writing to the Romans is outlined for us here in the first few verses. The Apostle Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he gives us very succinctly in a couple of verses a summary of the gospel of God right off the bat. So he, his, his purpose for bringing this book, for writing this book, is to explain the gospel of God. And that's what he does from the first verse to the last. The gospel. The good news. The good news which also includes some very bad news, which makes the good news gooder, better. And then, what, how, why does this matter? Why does this matter to Jews? Why does this matter to Gentiles? How should Jews and Gentiles relate to each other in light of this good news? And how should we then live as saints in the world with each other and with the world in which we live? This is all a part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul gives some other reasons for writing this book as well. Some of them we find here in chapter 1. Others we don't find until chapter 15. But first of all, he says, I want to come see you folks. I want to encourage you, and I want you to encourage me. And he's writing this letter by way of introducing himself to the saints in Rome to kind of give them some, some preliminary kind of introduction. Paul asks for prayers from them. This is found in chapter 15. He asks for prayers as he journeys to Jerusalem where he knows he may face imprisonment. He hopes that the offering that he's collected uh, in Corinth, where he probably was when he, when he wrote this letter, he hopes that this offering will be accepted there by the Jews from the Gentiles. He asks the, the Roman church to pray for him. He's hoping that the Roman church will support him because he intends to go to Rome and then on to Spain for missionary service there. And it seems he's asking the, the church in Rome to support him there in that, in that endeavor. And the Apostle Paul seems to be aware that there might be some conflict between Jews and Gentiles in Rome. And so we have a chapter, a chapter and a half, 13 and 14, that deal with some of this conflict. But for the most part, the book of Romans is not like many of the other epistles, which are written as a corrective. The book of Romans is written basically as an explanation of the gospel. The gospel is the message, as I said, of this book from beginning to end. And in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, we find the Apostle Paul's thesis statement right here. Some of the most potent words you will find in the text of Scripture. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the rest of the book of Romans is all about that. It's all about explaining, demonstrating, defending that. Now, our usual inclination may be to think that once we have heard and responded to the gospel in conversion, then we can move on to other more important things. That idea is foreign to the Apostle Paul, and it ought to be foreign to us. Instead of moving on to other things, the Apostle Paul goes deeper into the gospel. 
He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you, the saints called by God in Rome. This is the most important thing he could do. And since we ourselves need to understand more and more the scope and magnitude of God's mercy and grace, no matter how long we've been believers, then we should meditate on and study this gospel and seek to live out of its, to live out of its power and out of its grace. This gospel is for all of us. Another difficulty that we have in, is that in looking for application to our lives, we look often only for stuff that we can do. Just tell me what to do, people say. But in Romans, and indeed in the rest of Scripture, much of the application involves a change in our thinking. A change in our thinking. And we should not underestimate such a change. For if we think differently about God and about ourselves, and if we think differently about God's purpose, then our whole lives will be influenced as a result. The purpose of the gospel is to not just cause us to do something, but to cause us to be somebody. To be children of God. To be fashioned after the likeness of Christ. This is about being. This is about being transformed. This is about being sanctified and saved. Now the Apostle Paul does give us some things to be doing. But they are usually towards the end of his epistles and, and after we have been taught about being. The being has to come first. One of the main themes of this book and of the entire Bible is that merely doing will never suffice. The issues that we must trust God exclusively, exclusively for are being. But we can do in our own strength many things. So that's what we tend to gravitate toward. And therein lies the problem, as expressed here in Romans chapter 1 and following. One of the biggest issues, one of our biggest issues, is that we put ourselves at the center of everything, including the gospel. Notice that's not what the Apostle Paul does. He calls this the gospel of God. This is all about the Son of God, through whom we have received grace, for the sake of His name. And in verse 16, this is the power of God. It is to display the righteousness of God. But we put ourselves at the center. This is the picture we get in verses 18 through, 20, uh, through 32. This is the bad news, that we have put ourselves at the center. We have put ourselves in the place of God. And so the wrath of God has been revealed, has been made manifest, has been has come upon us, and we suffer the inevitable results. It should be no surprise to us that we see here in verse 24 that this, this depravity, this unrighteousness starts in the heart. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. That's what they wanted. He let them do it. And furthermore, this corruption enters the mind. In verse 28, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions no, verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God gave, the, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This selfishness starts in the heart. It's developed in the mind, and it finally fleshes itself out in horrible behavior. In the last couple of verses of chapter 1, we see this. It should be no surprise to us then, if that's how the flesh works, that the gospel happens first by change of heart, and then accomplished by Christ a development of the mind as we change our thinking, and that is followed by a resulting change in behavior. But too often we go at this backwards. We attempt to change the behavior first, and then the mind, and finally the heart. And all that does is reveal to us that we are still at the center of our gospel. We don't really see God at the center of the gospel. We see ourselves. And lest we misunderstand, the Apostle Paul then goes on in chapter 2 to point out where we go wrong. We look at other people and we say, Huh, they're the bad ones. And look at me, I'm so much better. No, you're not. No, you're not. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one who meets God's standard of perfect righteousness. 
You might say, I'm better than that guy over there. And God says, who cares? You're still not as good as me. Not even for the Jews. The Jews who had special access to the things of God. He says, you keep the law and are circumcised. Great. But if you're uncircumcised and keep the law, you too are the child of God. But if you don't keep the law, it doesn't matter who you're descended from. It doesn't matter who you're related to. You're subject to the wrath of God. And so you say, then, okay, okay, I get it. I get it. I'll keep the law. Not so fast. Chapter 3 tells us that even the Jews, the Jews, the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God, the law of God, they were not able to keep the law. What makes you think you're going to keep the law? The news is worse than we thought. You see, the law is a cruel taskmaster. Not only does it give us an impossibly difficult standard to meet, and then it tells us, ah, by the way, you can't do it. And so in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, he says, every mouth will be stopped. Everybody's going to have to shut up because God has the last word and God will hold every man accountable according to his standard. And he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're a pagan, it doesn't matter if you're a Mennonite, no human being will be justified by the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what the law is for. The law shows us up. The law shows us how bad we really are. But then comes the good news. It's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Impossibility. Yes. Impossible to please God. Impossible to be righteous according to the law. And then comes verse 21 in chapter 3. Some of the sweetest words in the Bible begin with the conjunction, but. But now. Something's happened. Christ has come. Christ has come and he reveals and makes manifest and displays the righteousness of God. Now, notice the law and the prophets did point to him. They did say it was coming. This isn't anything new. This isn't anything that's foreign to the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul has been using the Old Testament all along and he continues to. But now, Christ has come. The righteousness of God the righteousness that we need, that we must possess if we are going to experience the glory, the honor, the peace of God that we read about in verse 10. This righteousness of God is available, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe. We must trust. We must acknowledge and admit that we are sinful at our core, that we are unrighteous, that we have rebelled against God. We must trust that the work of Christ for our redemption in propitiating or averting the wrath of God is enough that it will save us. And all of this requires that we accept this as a gift. Do you know how hard it is to receive a gift? For some of you, it's harder than others, right? Somebody wants to give you something and you're, you're just dead set on not letting them give it to you. Why? Why is it so hard for us? Because we want to do it for ourselves. That's our problem. It's our problem all along. It's been the problem from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 3. We want to do it for ourselves. And God says, no go. You can't do it for yourself. The gospel tells us we are wrong. We are very wrong. We're not right. We are fatally wrong. The only hope we have is a gift. But that gift requires that we give up on ourselves. That we give up on our desires. On our ability to, to be right. And we trust only in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul asks in verse 27, What becomes of our boasting then? <laughs> kind of puts it in its place, doesn't it? You think you're special? Think again. You think you have it all together? Think again. 
There is no favoritism with God. There is no other way to be made right with God than to come to Him in faith and trust and be justified by His free gift of grace. And then in chapter 4, we hear the Jews chiming in. Yeah, but what about Abraham? Didn't, didn't he count for anything? Yeah. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So if you too believe and trust God and not yourself, then you are a child of Abraham. And then in the end of chapter 4, we have this definition of faith, the kind of faith we're talking about here. It says, Abraham hoped against hope because he heard the word of God and he believed. God said it. He knew it was going to be true. It didn't stop him from believing when he considered his own limitations. He was as good as dead. He was 100 years old. How was he going to have a child? And Sarah, she was 90-something and barren. But Abraham believed God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And in verse 22 it says, that is why his faith was counted as righteousness. And then the sweet conclusion here at the end of chapter 4. This isn't just for Abraham. This is for us. If we believe, if we trust like Abraham did, if we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, the one who was delivered up and died for our trespasses and raised for our justification, if we believe him, if we trust him, then we will be counted as righteous before God. And this righteousness will be nothing that we can boast about because it isn't ours to start with. It's been given us to us as a free gift by the grace of God. Him that glories, him that boasts, let him boast in the Lord. This isn't about you. It's about him. Now, what are you going to do about this? Faced with all the evidence that the Apostle Paul brings to us here in these chapters, what will be your response? Over and over again in this great letter, the Apostle Paul writes about the obedience of faith. The reality of this gospel, the reality that we are selfish rebels, that God is a righteous judge, and then the reality that this righteous judge has come, has made a way at very great cost to himself. Through no goodness of our own, he's made a way to be brought into right relationship with him. This good news demands a response. There are only two possible responses. Yes, Lord, or no. The only two possible responses are a further rejection of the truth of who God is, a further pursuit of selfishness, or an obedience to the faith, whereby we say, yes, Lord, yes, Master, I surrender myself, I surrender my selfish desires, I trust you completely. If you say, not now, I'm going to wait you are, in fact, rejecting God. And you are subject to His wrath, both in this life and in the judgment. And the judgment is coming. But if you say, yes, Lord, even if you don't fully understand, you can still pray as the father who had a, a child who was healed by Jesus says, I believe, help me my unbelief. Then you will have demonstrated the obedience of faith. And then you too can be a child of God, a child of Abraham, and be justified in the sight of God. So which will it be? This morning, right here, right now. Go back and scan chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. See if you see yourself there anywhere, anywhere. If you can't find yourself there, look at chapters 2 and 3. I assure you, you're there. What are you going to do? Way down deep in the dark recesses of your heart, you have to admit that even if you are better than most of your friends, you still don't measure up to God's standard. And that, my friends, is the standard that matters. You, all of us, must 
we need to be saved from the righteous wrath and judgment of God. God will judge. That is a certainty. The question is, are you going to presume on his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, as it says in chapter 3? Don't you know that these things are God's means to bring you to repentance? Don't presume on that. If you do, it says you will be storing up in yourself the wrath of God. Will you repent? Will you agree with God about your status before Him? Will you agree with God and will you trust God? Or are you going to harden your heart and store up the wrath of God, which will be poured out on you? The choice is yours. The time for a decision is now. What will it be? I beg of you. I plead with you. Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you as unworthy. Unworthy even to utter your name. We know that you are a righteous, you are a holy God. We know that we can never in ourselves measure up to your standard of perfection, of holiness. We are grateful that you have seen us in our pitiful state, that you have made provision for our rescue, for our salvation. I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit and through your word to convict all of us. Father, I ask that you would do your good work in the hearts of those here who have already surrendered to you. Help us to have greater confidence in you and greater love for you. Make us vessels of service and sacrifice for your glory. For those here who haven't yet surrendered and trusted in your son Jesus, I plead with you that you would glorify yourself by changing their hearts and minds. Help them to see themselves as they really are. To see you as the beautiful Savior and Lord of the universe and of their life. Amen.